Well, let's start out this morning by a show of hands. How many of you here today, say in a week's time, watch some sort of sporting event, whether it be live or on TV? I had a hand go up before the question was even finished. <laughs> All right, show of hands, let me know. All right, I would say that is the majority of you. I think maybe over 80% or so of you. All right, now let me know by a show of hands, um, how many of you have a favorite sports team that you're gonna cheer for whether they are winning or losing? Yes, again, about the same amount. Well, that's pretty much what I figured. And I know um, that for me, <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I tend to refer to any sort of sporting event as sports ball. Um, it, I am not the person that you want to come talk to about the latest stats of any sport. I'm really not the person you want to have that conversation with about the great play you saw in the game last night. I'll agree with you, but just know I'm not going to know anything about what you're talking about. But again, I know that I'm in the minority when it comes to this. Did you know that in 2023, an average week, 17.2 million people watched Thursday night football with the NFL. 17.2 million. Clearly, there is something about competition that we enjoy, something that draws us to this aspect of competition. And there are probably a whole lot of reasons that this is true, but I think, first of all, um, we are so competitive, and in sporting events, it's one place that we can really let that competitiveness out. We might not show it in our everyday lives. Um, while we are competitive in our everyday lives, we might not let it out quite as much as we do on the field. We, I also think that sporting events are one place that it is acceptable to show that aggression that we have, our aggressiveness. Again, something that we typically would probably hold inside when we feel that angry. But I also think that it's about being a community, right? There is something oddly comforting about sitting in a sea of people wearing the same colors as you are and cheering for the same things or jeering for the same things, likes and dislikes you have. And let me just say, I don't see anybody here in church this morning dressed like this. Where else do we voluntarily dress in ways that we would never be seen in public anywhere else? But it's actually not just sporting events, right? We see competition all over the place. If you want to, you could join in the world beard and mustache competition. Or you could maybe be a part of a fish flinging competition, that is a real thing, and um, if your spouse agrees to it, you could carry your wife on your back throughout a race and see how fast you can do it. I've already let my husband know that is not happening. <laughs> Clearly, we see it here in these pictures. We are a society that is pretty much just obsessed with competition. We know, though, that it's not just in our 
fun lives. It's not just in these fun things. It's also in what we do every single day. Wouldn't you agree with me that competition exists in our workplace, where we strive to have the best positions possible many of us want to be at the top? Or in our schools, we want the best schools for our kids and we urge them to get the best grades possible. Or even with our homes, we all want our house to be the best on the block, or at least not be the worst. This is a society that is based on competition. Now there are good things about this. There is research that shows that it can teach, competitions can teach valuable skills that we need in life, like problem solving or decision making. And it can increase our self-esteem as well. It seems like competition is a great motivator for us to reach the goals that we have. But like anything else, there's a flip side of that. And there are negative consequences of living in a society based on competition. Because when we rely on it only for the basis of our life, that foundation that we need, it can actually cause us anxiety and depression, and it can lower our self-esteem. If we are constantly pressured to perform at the highest level possible, that is a very short road to being burnt out, constantly exhausted and overwhelmingly stressed. And at its most unhealthy levels, competition can turn our minds into thinking negatively about everyone else, whether we're taking part in those sporting events or not. This has a grave impact on not just our minds, but our physical bodies too. I believe that in way too many instances, in way too many situations, that negative flip side of competition has become our reality. Even though we are obsessed with it, the benefits of competition are currently being outweighed by the negative attributes of it. Now, hear me out. I am not saying that we shouldn't have competitions in our world, and I am certainly not saying that we should get rid of sporting events, so please don't throw anything at me. But I am saying that if we take an honest look at ourselves, if we clearly look at this world around us, we will see that this negative piece of competition has seeped its way into all of our lives. It's there in our government, it's in our economic world, it's deep within us, everywhere. So then, what does all of that do with this virtue of friendliness that we're talking about, focusing on during this series? If we look at scripture, we see that it is all about living counterculturally. It is all about seeing the world more closely to ways that God sees the world, what God wills for this world. 
And yes, many people think that living in a friendly disposition all of the time, or most of the time, is an outdated way of living. Some feel that it's an ideal we can never achieve, so why even try? But we adhere to the words that we find in Scripture, and these words tell us something very different. We know that friendliness, competition, aggressiveness, those are all part of human reality, human behaviors. And they are all needed, sometimes they are vitally needed for the well-being of our lives. We need them all. However, knowing that some of us are disposed to one or the other just because of the way our bodies are comprised, the genetics that we have, shouldn't be our scapegoat for choosing to see the world so negatively. And that is what it's all about. It may be hard for us to admit, but we do indeed have a choice when it comes to how we view this world. Woods and Hare, who are the authors of the book we're, we're basing um, mostly on, is sur <clears throat> excuse me, survival of the friendliness and they say this, every emotion that we have enriches the lens through which we see the world. And though we feel these emotions in our chest, our gut, and the tips of our fingers, they live in our minds and are largely created from our theories about the minds of others. Excuse me. That frog shows up when we um, least need it, right? They give a few examples of this idea. The first is love, right? What is love if we don't have the magic of knowing that somebody else loves us too? Our, our embodiment of love is enhanced when we know that somebody else thinks about us the way we think about them. And then the flip side, of course, of that is hatred. And research shows us that our hatred will burn brighter for others if we are convinced that they don't like us, or if we convi are convinced that they intend us harm. And that not, might not even be the case. It might be that they truly like us and enjoy being with us, but if we are convinced the opposite of that is true, then our hatred roots even deeper within us. So then we can choose to approach the world with love or hatred, with aggressiveness, with friendliness, but chances are that whatever it is that we choose to lead with is what we will receive in return. It's this choice that Paul <clears throat> points to in his passage, in this passage from Romans today. Up to this point, <clears throat> I'm so sorry. Up to this point in Paul's letter, he's been talking about God's love for us. He's been using the Greek term agape. And this term refers to the kind of love that God has for us. It is only used in scripture when referring to God. And it is a type of love that looks beyond our shortcomings, our ways that we falter our sin, and loves us fully still. We can strive 
to embody this kind of love, but at the end of the day, it is only God who can fully embody it. But now, as he gets further into his letter to the Romans, he changes the perspective. And instead of looking at God's love for us, he starts looking to what our love for others should look like. And he lists all sorts of things. He says, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Love one another with mutual affection. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless your enemies. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, repay evil with kindness. And that's not even all of it. His list goes on. And yes, at first glance, we might see that and we might hear it as something that we could never live up to. However, because we know what came before it in this letter, we know that we can live up to this and we can choose to live in this way because we know that God has already done this for us. Here's an example for you. In Romans chapter five, verse six, Paul writes, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We are the ungodly, we are the sinners, and yet Christ died for us. And then in our passage today from Romans 12, Paul wrote, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. We understand that because God chose to repay our evil with kindness by blessing us. Here's one more example for you from Romans chapter five, verse 10, where it says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. We understand that. Then through the lens of Romans 12, where Paul writes, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. This is all about resetting our minds. When our human ways tell us to respond to this world with hate, God tells us that we should respond to this world with love and friendliness, even if or when we are competing. Paul is making the case that friendliness will benefit this world much more than hatred ever will. And we should know this already because we have been the benefactors of this same love. In a world that is motivated by competition and always coming out on top, we can transform our minds. We are called to be a transformative display of God's love for this world, working to mirror more closely the way that God sees this world. My hope today, uh, for each of us, not only today, but as we begin this new year, is that we will all be able to reflect on how it is we choose to see this world every single day. And I'll give you one more bit of research from Woods and Hare's book. 
It is proven that it will take multiple generations to change the behavior of animals to a more friendly disposition. And the same may be very true for us. It may take multiple generations for us to change the mindset of this world. But I ask you this, where are we if we don't start somewhere? Following Paul's letter, heeding to the encouragement and the call that he gives to us, we will be benefited in profound ways as we strive to live more closely to God's will for this world. Thanks be to God. Amen.